So I want to just welcome those of you who are joining us uh, by virtue of our podcast. We took a break last week from our series, The Legend of Joe Jacobson, in order to celebrate our one-year anniversary. Man, I had a great time at that. Thank you guys so much for participating in that and for being, uh, you know, for coming to our picnic and, and all of that. It was a great time. I want to pick up this morning, though, um, the series that we've been in. Uh, if you have a Bible, I'd like for you to turn with me in it to Genesis chapter 42, Genesis chapter 42. And while you're turning there, I just want to make a couple of comments. Um, I mentioned uh, earlier about uh, the upcoming events on October 17th and 18th, the great porn debate, and then also the porn and parents event. I want to tell you guys that I talked to Triple X Church this past week, and, and I asked them, I said, are there specific things that our congregation could be doing right now? Um, to help with this event. And they said the two things that you guys need to be doing right now are, uh, number one, you need to have an enormous prayer uh, movement for this event. Uh, there needs to be a lot of prayer. And they said because there will be enormous spiritual opposition to this. There has been in every place they've ever done it. Enormous spiritual opposition. And I don't know if this surprises you or not, but what they told me was that you can expect the greatest spiritual opposition to come from uh, religious groups in the area. And so we need to be praying. And I hope that you will, in your own personal devotional time, be praying for this event. And also praying that as a result of this event, that there are a lot of people that find healing and help and that we're able to educate people, but also that people hear and learn about Jesus Christ through this event. The other thing is that they said was before uh, other kinds of advertising start, your church the people in your church need to be talking about this everywhere they go. I mean, they need to tell people, tell friends, co-workers about it, Facebook, Twitter, verbal conversations, whatever. You guys need to be promoting it. They said that, that you can do a lot of other kinds of advertising, and we will, but they said that the most effective advertising comes from the people in your church. So I would just encourage you guys to be talking about that frequently. I know it's not a particularly easy conversation to have. I know it's not a particularly comfortable subject, right? However, we're not in this to do only comfortable things. We're in this to reach people where they are and to have conversations, meeting them where they are, and we're here to build a great city. And sometimes that means having to tackle some difficult things. And so we're going to tackle this one, and you can be a part of that. Okay, um, we got a lot of ground to cover this morning. Means What that means is that there are too many verses uh, in the ground that we're going to cover this morning for me to read all of them to you. So I'm going to read some of the verses to you, but some of it I'm going to just tell you uh, what happens in some of the verses because, as I said, just too many to read uh, with the time that we have. Let me just give you a brief review of where we've been so far. Joseph, the son of Jacob, was sold into slavery uh, through the betrayal of his brothers. His master's wife thought him to be delicious eye candy and demanded to have demanded him to have sex with her. He refused. She cried rape, and he was thrown into prison. It's taken us six weeks to get through there. Now, just a little information about things that happened between where we left off and where we're going to start today. Because Joseph was thrown into prison, he met a couple of the members of Pharaoh's court who had been banished to prison for a short time uh, with him. Pharaoh, one night, has a very confusing dream, but he senses that it's very important. There's no one in Egypt, though, who can interpret this dream. One of the members of Pharaoh's court remembered a young man that he had met in prison who had interpreted another dream for him. 
And so this member of Pharaoh's court suggests to Pharaoh that perhaps this young man, Joseph, could interpret this dream. Joseph is brought before Pharaoh. Pharaoh tells him the dream. And Joseph tells him this was a God-given dream. And the purpose of this dream was to warn you, Pharaoh, that a great famine is coming to your land. Pharaoh was so impressed with Joseph that he promotes him. He not only gets out of prison, but he promotes him and makes him the prime minister of Egypt. And Joseph was able, through his administrative skills that God had given him, Joseph was able to prepare the nation for a great famine so that instead of death and starvation, food and life was all through Egypt. Now we're going to pick up the reading at Genesis chapter 42, we're going to start reading at verse, at verse 1. Genesis chapter 42, uh, verse 1. When Jacob learned, okay, Jacob was Joseph's father, remember that. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I've heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. And then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others, because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons, that's another name for Jacob, Israel. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for there was famine in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the governor or prime minister of the land. The person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. I'll explain that in a minute. And then he remembered his dreams about them. You remember the dream that he had, gang? Do you remember the dream that he had early on? About all of his brothers and his father and his mother coming to bow down in front of him. He said, then he remembered his dreams about them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see where our land uh, is not protected. Okay. Uh, Let me just do a little, let me just kind of explain some of the things that have been happening here in this passage. Um, when Joseph, excuse me, uh, this famine that God allowed throughout Egypt has been so widespread that it even hit Joseph's homeland. The narrator skillfully informs us with just a few strokes of the pen that all of the family dysfunction is still very much alive with Jacob's family. When Jacob learns that There's grain in Egypt. He refuses to send his youngest son, Benjamin. Why? Why does he refuse to send him? Well, because the last time that he sent one of his sons with these older brothers, the son didn't come back. Remember, Jacob thinks that Joseph is dead. And so Jacob doesn't even trust his own sons. In fact, did you notice how he says to his sons to go get uh, grain in Egypt? Did you notice? I mean, it sounded very... um, very critical, very mean-spirited the way he said it. He was like, he's like, why are you just got why do you guys just keep looking at each other? Go do something. It's not a very gracious way for a father to speak to his children. 
When the ten brothers arrive in Egypt and they stand before Joseph, they don't recognize him, even though Joseph recognizes them. Now, that makes sense, because Joseph, you'll remember, was 17 when they last saw him. They were adults. He was only 17 years of age. So as a kid, he's probably changed a lot. About 13 years have passed. So he's, you know, he's now a 30-year-old man. They're still adults. They probably haven't changed as much as he has. So he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And then Joseph begins to play, I'll, I'll say it this way, that he begins to play a game with them. It's calculating, but it is not a malicious game. In fact, there's a redemptive point to this whole game that he plays with them. He wants to know if Benjamin, his brother, is still alive. But he also wants to bring his brothers to repentance. Because without repentance, his relationship with his brothers can't be restored. Now, instead of, again, I told you just a minute ago I was going to do this. Instead of reading uh, all the verses in between now and where we're going to go to in just a moment, I want to just tell you what happens in this genius game that Joseph plays with his brothers. As you just saw, he accused them of being spies. He knows they're not spies, but he accuses them of being spies, and then he throws them into prison for three days. He then goes to them, and he brings them out of prison, and he says, okay, I'll tell you what, um, I'm going to give you grain to take home, but I'm going to keep one of you, one of you brothers here as a prisoner, so that when you return with your younger brother, he knows they have a younger brother, he, can, he, he got them in some of the intervening verses to tell him that they had a younger brother. Um, he says, so when you return with your younger brother, I will know that you're telling the truth and not spies. So he's going to keep one of them in jail while they go home and get their younger brother and bring him back because he wants to know if he's still alive. The brothers go back home and they tell their dad, Jacob. And Jacob says, I will never let you take Benjamin back. He's willing to let one of his sons rot in prison. This is a great father, right? He's willing to let one of his sons just rot in prison forever. Two years pass, and the family is desperate for grain again. And Jacob has no choice but to relent. And he sends little Benji with his brothers. And they come before Joseph again. And Joseph Joseph gives all of them grain, and he sends them home. But he hide, he has hidden, he has one of his servants in the courts, he has one of them hide the royal silver cup in little Benji's grain bag. And so on the way home, all of the brothers, brothers are going home, but on the way home, suddenly, a messenger comes from the court, and he shows up and he says, The royal silver cup has been stolen. I have to search all of your bags. And he opens everyone's bags. And much to the brother's dismay, there the royal silver cup is in little Benji's bag. And the brothers are petrified. They're brought back before Joseph. And they're so afraid that they say, We are All of them, they bow down and they say, we are your slaves. But Joseph says, no, 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 no. I only need one of you. The one whose bag the cup was in. He will be my slave forever. The rest of you can go free. 
And at that moment, this little game that Joseph has been playing with them to bring them to repentance, at that moment, Joseph's game works exactly the way that he had hoped. One of the brothers, his name is Judah, one of the brothers steps forward and makes an offer to Joseph so electrifying and so astounding that Joseph clears his court again. He just clears his court. And here's, what, here's the offer that Judah made. Well, I'll tell you what, I can't tell you about that till next week. You'll have to wait till next week to hear about that. But I do want you to flip over to chapter 45, verse 1. Chapter 45, verse 1. And I want, I want you to read what the impact is that this has on Joseph. Okay. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all of his attendants. And he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's ha- household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Why are they terrified? Well, they're terrified that he's going to kill them all. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And listen to this. And now... Do not be distressed and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been famine in the land and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here. But God, he made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. I wonder if you could have said what Joseph said to his brothers. Like, Don't be angry at yourselves uh, because it wasn't you that sent me here. God sent me here. I wonder if you could have said that to your your brothers. Kind of blow, well, not kind of. It blows my mind. In other words, words, yes, you, you sold me and I was sent to prison and I spent all those years in a dungeon. But underneath all of that, God was working. Could you have said that to someone? Don't, don't feel bad about it. Okay, you're, you're like, well, sure, I could have said that. You're saying that because you're not in Joseph's position. Okay, let me just give you a couple of examples. Ladies, imagine that your husband slept with other women. And he took you through a nasty divorce to marry uh, the youngest of the women that he slept with. You and your kids had to leave the family home. You had to get a job. The kids went through enormous trauma. Could you imagine saying to your ex, don't be angry at yourself for putting us through all of that. Could you imagine yourself saying that? Guys, the 
Your boss fires you at Christmas time. Something that he knows you didn't do. And you spend a year on the unemployment line. You have to file for bankruptcy. Your wife leaves you. Could you imagine being able to say to your boss, could you imagine telling him or telling her, don't be angry at yourself about that. It was God that was working in all of that. Could you imagine saying him, saying that to him or her? Could you? See? It's amazing to me that Joseph can say this. How, how can he say, how did he do that? How did he get to a point that he could say, you know, guys, don't, don't feel bad about it. It was really God that was doing all of this. I think it has to do with the work that God was doing underneath all of the betrayal and all of the jail time and all of the disappointments that Joseph experienced during that roughly 13-year period of his life. And the rest of today, I, I just want to take the rest of today and understand what it was exactly that God was doing during that period of time. Now, I want to tell you guys that actually this is a two-part sermon. We have three more weeks left in this series. We have this week, next week, and then one more week. This week and next week is a two-part sermon, okay? Okay. Today, I just want to talk about what God did. What, was, what exactly was it that he was doing? What did he do during this period of time in Joseph's life? And then next week, I want to talk about how he did what he did and why he could do it. So this week, we're talking about uh, what he did, and then next week, we'll talk about how he did it and why he could do it. Okay, so what is it exactly that God was doing during that period of time? And I think this is fascinating, and I think it's mind-boggling. I want you to think for just a moment with me. What was Joseph's biggest problem? What was his, what, what, what was his brother's biggest problem? The biggest problem that all of them had was Jacob. He was a terrible father. On the one hand, he spoiled Joseph, and Jacob kind of built his whole life around Joseph, kind of lived his life vicariously through Joseph. Um, you, 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 have, you ever, um, have you ever known dads who kind of lived their lives vicariously through their son's sports? You ever known dads like, like, like Tiger Woods' dad, Earl? I mean, he kind of did that. Have you ever known other dads that were like that? Or maybe you've known stage moms like uh, who live their lives through their daughter's accomplishments or things. You, you know what I'm talking about? Okay. This is what Jacob was like with Joseph. And it turned Joseph into this prideful, uh, unself-aware, um, arrogant, superior son. And on the other hand, Jacob's favoritism of Joseph had come at the expense of his brother's who were so hateful and so jealous that they wanted to kill Joseph. But they sold him into slavery so at least they could make a buck off of him. See, all of these kids are on the road to becoming terrible people because their father had been such a horrible father to them. And yet, at the same time, gang, we know from the rest of the Bible that God has chosen all of these brothers for enormous roles. Joseph is going to become a savior for his people. These brothers, I don't know if you realize this, but these brothers are going to become namesakes for the 12 tribes of Israel, the very basis 
for God's unique nation in the world, this nation that was supposed to be so unique, Israel, so distinct from the rest of the world, so awesome because, they, because God was their God. These brothers are going to become the namesakes for the 12 tribes of Israel. All of these guys have big roles coming in the future. And the question is, how in the world are they going to fulfill these roles if they're on track to becoming such terrible people? And the answer to that, the answer to how they're going to fulfill these roles is what God did during those 13 years. And here's what he did. He became the father that they never had. He became the father that they never had. In other words, he became the father beyond their father. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, to understand what I mean by that, I've got to take you to another passage. It's in the New Testament. You don't have to turn there. I'll put the verses up here on the screen for you. But these verses are in Hebrews chapter 12. And this is a passage of Scripture that, to be honest with you, I have personally uh, struggled with over the years. I've really wrestled with this passage. And I want to just show it to you because I think, I think, this, I think Joseph's story... And his brother's story is a perfect case study of this passage. And what it means when I say that, he, that God became the father they never had. This passage is in Hebrews chapter 12. And it reads like this. It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Mark that word discipline. If you have a Bible or something, mark that word. Say, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. And do, do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines, there's that word again, the one he loves and he chastens, there's the word again, everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? No discipline, you see the word showing up over and over again? No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So as you saw, all through that passage, it talks about God's discipline. But you know what the trouble with that word is in English? The trouble with that word in English is that it almost always means punishment, doesn't it? Like when you think about discipline, really, you think punishment. The Greek word that is translated discipline here in this passage is the Greek word paideia, paideia, from which we get our word pediatrics. I don't know if you know that. It's from the Greek word paideia. And what paideia means, it, it, it means the oversight of the entire environment of a child so that the child gets what he or she needs to grow up to be strong and mature. So what we're, what we're referring to by this word paideia, what we're referring to is child nurture. But it's child nurture with teeth in it because you definitely have to bring consequences into a child's life, don't you? Some of those are sharply unpleasant. Some of the consequences that you allow a child to experience are sharply unpleasant. But you do that because if, if they don't have any consequences, they're on the road for a very terrible life. But I want you to understand that there's a very large distinction, a very large difference between nurturing discipline and retri- retribu- uh, retribution. 
hard for me to say. Retribution is when someone does something wrong. They get what they deserve, you pay them back. Right? Like, you made your bed, now you can lie on it. And often in child-rearing, let's just be honest, parents, often in child-rearing, parents often fall into payback, don't we? Um, The child upsets you, you know, your child insults you, they hurt you, and you pay them back. You make them cry. You punish them. And it's almost impossible to not occasionally fall into payback as a parent, isn't it? I did. I did. At least twice. (laughs) A day. (laughs) For years. (laughs) But real... Real paideia is not, it's not justice. Real paideia is an exercise of love. And I'm going to get back to Joseph here in just a moment, but just stick with me through this. Real paideia, what you do with real paideia is you break, you bring into the child's life just enough unpleasantness and not one iota more in order to them, for them to learn and grow and mature. Just enough, and not one iota more. Just enough to change the child, to help them escape from becoming, you know, whatever, a liar, a cruel, selfish person, whatever. Just enough to lovingly change them, to help them mature and grow the child into someone good. That's nurturing discipline. And you say, that's hard to do. Well, it's more than hard to do. It's impossible. No human being on the planet can do it perfectly. And that's the point. Because no matter who you are, no matter how good your parents were or how bad your parents were, no matter who you are, you need God's paideia. Because you never received it from anyone else perfectly. So when the writer of Hebrews says that God is disciplining you, The reason I always struggled with this is because I equated discipline with punishment. Like, no matter what anybody ever said, when my parents disciplined me, I felt like it was punishment. And And so I always struggled with this passage. But when the writer of Hebrews says that God is disciplining you, he's saying two things. He's saying, one, everyone, every person on the face of the earth is living in a broken world. Every one of us. You're going to face betrayals. You're going to face disappointments. You're going to face tragedies. It's inevitable. All of us do. And the second thing he's saying is that every person on the face of the earth has a broken soul. There are things very wrong with you. And there are things very wrong with me. And I will just tell you that if you don't realize that, then you haven't taken an honest look at yourself. Every one of us is broken. And what the word paideia means is that for the person who turns to God through Jesus Christ, God will begin, like a father, a perfect father, to do nurturing discipline in your life. In other words, and John, you can go ahead and put this slide up there. God, what paideia means for you, is that God will bring the external brokenness of the world into relationship with the internal brokenness of your soul in just the right proportions to make you into someone great. Let me just say that one more time. Paideia means that God will bring the external brokenness of the world you live in 
into relationship with the internal brokenness of your soul in just the right proportions to make you into someone great. In other words, God will become your father who knows how to discipline you perfectly so that you become someone great. And you ask, well, doesn't that, doesn't that make God responsible for evil? Not at all. Not at all. He's just, he's just allowing the evil that already exists in the world to come into contact with your life in such a way that it will make you into someone great. Now look at, let me bring it back to Joseph. Look at, what jo- look, at, look at what God did in Joseph's life. It's a perfect example. He was sold into slavery by his brothers. God didn't make his brothers do that. He just used what his brothers did. Joseph was betrayed by Potiphar's wife. God didn't make Potiphar's wife do what she did, but he used it. And God used those things to move Joseph from this prideful, superior uh, young man that had no self-awareness. He used that to turn him into a man of wisdom, uh, to turn from uh, this arrogant young man into a man of humility, uh, to turn this selfish young man into a man of compassion and generosity who could rescue two nations and keep the messianic hope of Jesus Christ alive. And what we're going to see next week is that God does the same thing with Joseph's brothers, using Joseph to do it. This is what paideia means. That God becomes your perfect father who allows the external brokenness of the world to come together with your internal brokenness. And he uses that in just the right proportions to make you into someone great. Everyone in the room this morning, everyone... Everyone has been through difficult things at one time or another. Some of you are going through some very difficult times right now. The great hope of this passage, the great hope of Paideia, the great hope of Hebrews 12, the great hope of Joseph's story for your life is that none of these difficult things that you have been through or are going through this morning have happened apart from God's knowledge. None of them. And no matter how terrible They are. God is using them to turn you in to someone great. There was a 17th century Catholic archbishop by the name of Francois Fenelon. Some of you may have heard of him. And he once wrote this. I love this quote. He says, Slowly you will learn that all the troubles in your life, your job, your health, your inward failings, are really cures to the person of your old nature. There's another great saint whose name for the life of me I couldn't remember, and I tried to find this as much as I could. But here's the quote. Here's, here's what the great saint says. Nothing touches your life that hasn't first passed through God's hands. You see, without the knowledge of God's nurturing discipline in, your, in our lives, every trial or every tragedy that enters our lives would seem devastating and maybe even tragic, And over the course of a life, all of the accumulations of the trials and tragedies that we experience would maybe even turn us into people who are hopeless and despairing people. But with the knowledge that God becomes our perfect father, there is actually enormous hope in every trial, enormous comfort in every tragedy, that God has actually allowed it into our lives to turn us into someone great, someone who can be used in other people's lives. And here's the thing. Every assault on your life, 
Every assault on your life can only fulfill what God wants to do in your life. You see, God has a dream for your life. He had a dream for Joseph's life. His dream for Joseph was that Joseph would rescue his people and keep the messianic hope alive. His brothers wanted to kill the dream. Satan wanted to kill the dream. Joseph was thrown into prison. All of these disappointments, all of these terrible things happened, and every one of those terrible things only helped fulfill God's dream for Joseph's life. In other words, Joseph, as a result of all of those things that happened, as a result of his own stupidity, his own arrogance, his own selfishness, his own sense of superiority, none of those things that happened to Joseph, none of them put him on plan B for God's life. He was still on plan A for, God, for God's, God's plan A for his life. Through all of that, none of it took him away from God's plan for his life. This is what the nurturing discipline of the Heavenly Father looks like. I want you to understand that God has a dream for your life too. Every single one of you, he has a dream to turn you into someone great. And everything that you have gone through, the things that you caused, the things that someone else caused, none of those things have taken you off the course for God's dream for your life. That's the hope of this passage. That's the comfort that comes as a result of this passage. And lest we forget, I just want to remind you that the reason God can be our Heavenly Father and do nurturing discipline in our lives instead of punishment, the reason is that Jesus the Messiah Our older brother, instead of selling us into slavery, bought us out of it and took the punishment that we deserved for our sin. He took it on the cross. Were it not for him, we would only be objects of God's wrath without any hope in the world. And I just want to tell you something. I know that you guys had to walk a long way to get in here because there's a convention of Jehovah's Witnesses next door. Now, those are all people that God loves dearly, but I'm going to tell you something about what they believe. The Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that Jesus was God. They believe that he was a created human being. Do you know what that means for them? If Jesus isn't God, he was born a sinner. He could never be an acceptable sacrifice for your sins, for mine, for theirs. And so because they don't believe that he was God, there is no comfort for them. There is no hope for them in the midst of their suffering like there is for you and for me and for anyone who has trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Were it not for what Jesus, God, in the flesh, did for you and for me on the cross, we would only be objects of God's wrath without any hope in the world. But because Jesus is God, because Jesus took the punishment that we deserved, we know that God is at work in our lives in the way that only a perfect Father can. We're going to close this morning in just a moment. David and the band are going to come up. They're going to do a last song. And you're going to see some people um, around the room that would like to pray for you if you have anything you'd like for them to pray for you about. 
during this last song. You can go to them and they'll pray for you. Maybe you have some difficulty that you're going through in your life right now, and you would like for them to pray for you. This would be a good time when they get up and you see them around the room. You could go to them and they will pray for you. Maybe, maybe you, maybe you want to say a prayer for some of the people next door. They'd be glad to pray with you for that. Maybe you've never come to a place in your life where you have received Jesus Christ as your Savior. This would be a good time to do that. You can get up out of your seat during this last song, and they'll be there to pray for you. I'd like for you to take advantage of that. If you would like to, um, we'd, we'd love for you to do that. Just go to them and let them pray for you. I want to close this in a word of prayer. David, if you and the band will come on up, uh, let me close this in a word of prayer this morning. Lord Jesus Christ, we are humbled by what you, our older brother, did on the cross for us. You did not sell us into slavery. You did not leave us in slavery. You bought us out of slavery by your death on the cross. Lord, I pray for those men and women next door. You love them. I'm no better than they are. But Lord Jesus Christ, they don't know you. They don't know you, God, in the flesh who came down from heaven on behalf of us and on behalf of them. And I pray, Lord, that for every one of those people, that somewhere they would hear and respond to the real gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for being our older brother. Thank you for loving us in the manner that you love us. Lord, let the let the truth of the gospel go across this city and let us, be a, let us be a hub for that. Let us be a part of that. Let us be so enamored with what you have done for us that we, just, we want to be a light to this whole city. We want to take the gospel and share it with everybody that we know. And Lord, may that happen by our changed lives that have been changed as a result of what you've done in us.